Well, it's obvious we're getting close to Christmas. I see a lot of red and green and see a lot of gift exchanges going on. And I want to encourage you to uh, go back and check your folder in the bookstore. I'm sure you have some Christmas cards in there. But uh, we are delighted that you are with us today. And whatever you do, don't miss tonight. It's going to be awesome. And uh, we're going to hear all the choirs, and you're going to get just a little taste of that in just a moment. But it's going to be a treat. You'll want to be part of that. And then remember, our Christmas Eve service is also a special uh, service that we do. And uh, it's usually well attended, so make sure that you uh, make that a priority as well. But we'll be focusing on Christ and the birth of Christ uh, for the the next uh, couple of weeks as we uh, move into that that time. Uh, I want to also mention to you that things have been getting a little tight in here. You've probably noticed that. Uh, some Sundays it's a little hard to find a place to sit. We've uh, set these chairs up for a little extra uh, room, so you're free to sit over here. We're going to make the orchestra sit up here from now on, right? Uh, but anyway, uh, it's good. These are growing pains and good kind of things to to see with the Lord's blessing. Well, this morning, I encourage you to take your Bible and find Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at a very familiar passage of Scripture, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. So after you find Philippians 2 in your Bible, uh, stand with me. Let's read it together. Philippians 2, beginning verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice this morning once again as we have gathered in your name. We, we rejoice in the gift of your Son. We thank you so much that you sent your Son Christ into the world to die on the cross, to redeem us, to pay for our sins, to purchase us a place in heaven forever with you. And Lord, we thank you for that wonderful truth of the gospel. It's the message of your word. It's why the Bible was written to explain and to help us to understand what you have revealed to us in scripture. And Lord, uh, we thank you so much that we can celebrate the birth of Christ, knowing that uh, it is symbolic of what you did to redeem us. And uh, Lord, we thank you that we can uh, 
sing the Christmas carols, we can think about the story, the, the bigger story, not just the birth of Christ, but his uh, life, his sinless life, his death on the cross, his uh, resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and that we can understand the whole story of what you have done for us. And so once again, we worship you. We thank you for the opportunity we have together in your name. And as we sing praise to you, we ask that you would uh, bless and that you would be pleased with our hearts, that they would be set on you, that we would have sincere hearts of worship and uh, that we would give our gifts with uh, willingness and uh, out of uh, a deep gratitude uh, for you what you've done. So, Lord, we pray this morning you bless as we worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At Christmas, we tend to emphasize the condescension of Christ, but we should be careful not to forget his exaltation as well. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. It has been called the kenosis passage, describing his self-emptying. But it is also the great parabola of Christ, not parable, but parabola. A parabola is an arc that starts at a low point and then moves toward a crescendo and then returns to a low point. But in the case of our Lord, of course, the parabola is reversed. He started at the highest point, the glories of heaven. He descended to the lowest point, the humiliation of the cross, and then he returned to the highest point, the right hand of the majesty on high. And we see that clearly outlined in this passage of Scripture. And the truth of the matter is that we usually reference his leaving the glories of heaven to become a man to die in our place. But we seldom include his return to glory after his death and resurrection. And yet that is just as much a part of the Christmas story. Mike Gendron says, This most illustrious passage takes us from Christ's inherent glory in eternity past to his incarnate purpose on earth to his everlasting exaltation in eternity future. In these seven verses, Paul teaches us the divinity of Christ, his eternal pre-existence, his equality with God the Father, his incarnation, his full humanity, his voluntary death on the cross, and his eternal reign as Lord over all. Of course, one of the greatest mysteries recorded in the Bible is the mystery of the incarnation. How God could put on human flesh. And dwell among us. The second greatest mystery is that of his kenosis. How could Christ lay aside his rights and privileges as deity 
in order to attain our salvation. So that's what we're going to see this morning. But I want to kind of set the stage of Philippians 2 with a little background of the context. The theme of Philippians 2 is having a heart to serve others. The first part of this chapter deals with having a servant attitude in the body of Christ. And you know, one of the truest tests of a person's relationship with the Lord is his relationship with other believers. We are commanded to serve others, but how often do we have to admit that we really want others to serve us? Listen, all the division and the strife that is found in the church, people who are unwilling to be submissive to the Lord and minister to others and be useful for the Lord, is a direct reflection of the fact that we often think too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Now, we've seen that in our study of 1 Corinthians. But in fact, do you realize that most of us at one time or another really have thought ourselves better than that of Jesus Christ? Now, that might be shocking to you. But that is a true statement when you stop to realize that Jesus never thought of himself as more important than those whom he served. Jesus was a perfect example of a servant's heart. And this is what we see in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Although the theme of Philippians is joy, and Paul is extremely grateful to the Lord for this congregation, one problem that existed there was the problem of division and strife. At least two women were having a difficult time getting along with one another. And Paul is quick to point out that this is a spiritual problem. This is not something that can be fixed through better organization, but something that requires a changed heart. And these women were not completely walking by the Spirit, or there would not have been this division. Listen, anytime there is division in the body of Christ, it is evidence that at least one person is not walking in the Spirit. So Paul tells them that. And chapter 2, verse 1 is the basis for their unity. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And he goes on then to explain to them that unity in the body of Christ is the result of each believer focusing on the interests of others rather than focusing on themselves. And then verse 3 says, Do nothing 
from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He warned them not to think too highly of themselves than they ought to think, but to think of others as being more important. What a radical concept. In fact, this is not really a concept that would be readily accepted by our world today. I mean, in fact, really the world would call this foolishness. And yet, this is the mandate for all believers. And it's very interesting that the word that is used for humility of mind there is a Greek word that was never used before the writing of the New New Testament. This is a uniquely Christian concept. This is not something that comes naturally to our human nature. It is something that is supernaturally produced by God in the heart of a true believer. But listen, selfishness and empty conceit has been a devastating cancer in many, many churches. And most of the problems and divisions in the church have been a direct result of people trying to put themselves out in front of others and seeking selfish desires rather than submitting to the will of God and faithfully serving others. So this is what Paul is getting at here in this chapter. Now, every last one of us is guilty at times of being self-seeking. And oftentimes we don't always think of others before ourselves. But what is our goal? What is our goal? Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We have a model to follow. And we see in verses 5 through 11 that Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled this servant attitude while on the earth. And we are to have the same kind of attitude that we see exhibited in him. The word for have this attitude in verse 5 means continually think this way. And it is important for us to see that this word carries with it the idea of controlled thinking. This is disciplined thinking. Part of the word that is used here is a word that you would use even today in the Greek language to talk about putting brakes on your car. It is clear with this term that there are some things that we are to think and that there are some things that we're not to think in relation to other believers. Folks, if Christ is my life, as Paul declared in Philippians 1, then I'm going to be controlled in what I think about other believers. There are certain ways that I'm going to think about others, and there are certain things that I am 
not going to think about others. This is a critical point here in the book of Philippians. That word is used 11 times in just this small book. And when Paul uses the term a certain way of thinking, he's not talking about something that just occasionally runs through your mind. He's talking about a way of thinking that so captivates you that becomes something that is so ingrained in your life that it determines how you think and how you behave toward others. Now, think about how this could be fleshed out in real life. I mean, how many of you have ever had the experience of visiting a new church and the minute you stepped through the door, you knew something was not quite right? I mean, have you ever gone into a church and have not felt the love and fellowship and unity in that church? Some churches you can go into and it feels like there's this heavy cloud hanging over everything. And there's no unity and people are staring daggers at one another. Well, listen, if that is the case, it is because there are at least some people in that church who do not have the mind of Christ. They are not continually thinking in this controlled, disciplined way of esteeming others as more important than themselves. And by the way, how can you really tell if someone has a servant's heart? How can you tell if someone really has this attitude that Paul is describing here? Do you just watch how they behave at church? No. Anybody can look good at church, right? Follow him home. See how he treats his wife and kids. See how he acts at work. See if he serves his neighbors. And it doesn't really take very long to discover if someone is really drawing out of the well of the Spirit or of the flesh. You see, Paul is describing something here That is an invisible attitude, but it is an attitude that has very visible expressions. Well, we've got to move on in this passage. And as we do, I think you would have to say that this this passage probably should have a sign on it that says, Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. This is one of those passages. And I believe that when Paul penned these words, the angels in heaven fell silent in awe of the glory of God so graciously revealed to man. The self-emptying of Christ is one of the most profound doctrines in all of Scripture. And we see three aspects of this kenosis, this self-emptying of Christ. We see, first of all, the position from which he was emptied. The position from which he was emptied. Look with me at verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
This is a profound truth. Notice what this says. That word existed is in the imperfect tense. That means he has always existed. And of course, John 1.14 tells us that he became flesh. But guess what? He already existed long before that. The word that is used here means that he had no beginning. He existed forever in eternity past. How did he exist? In the form of God. Now, the word that is used for form here means an outer display. This is a reference to the splendor that he had in his pre-incarnational state. Folks, listen, you and I have never seen Jesus in all his glory. But we will someday. We cannot even begin to comprehend this. We cannot even begin to imagine the splendor of his glory. But one day the Bible says the whole world will see that glory when he comes with 10,000 of his saints to judge the world and to set up his eternal kingdom. What does Hebrews 1.3 say? It says he is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. Folks, Jesus Christ is and always has been eternal God. Absolutely equal with the Father in heaven. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. So what was his position? His position was that of sharing all the splendor and majesty and glory of the Godhead. How did he regard that position? He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to. I mean, what an amazing thing this is. In his incarnation, the Lord Jesus emptied himself by refusing to cling to his privileges and prerogatives as almighty God. Now, listen, you can study that phrase for a long period of time, but really it boils down to one thing. He did not use his position as God to put himself first. That is the whole concept. Listen, Jesus Christ was perfectly committed to downward mobility. He was not moving up the ladder. He was moving down the ladder. In fact, he was willing to take the very lowest rung of the ladder in order to gain our salvation. You know, he could have made himself king of the world if he had chosen. He could have taken Satan up on his offer and taken the easy road to success. But he instead chose to empty himself of all rights and privileges as God in order to gain our salvation. He chose to wear a crown of thorns Instead of a crown of gold. And remember now, we are his servants. The servant is never greater than the master. We too must choose 
humility and submission to the will of the Father. Paul said in Romans 12:3, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. My friend, listen, whatever your position is on this earth, it is never something as a believer that you should take pride in. We should never put ourselves first. We should always think more highly of others than ourselves. And for those who are elders in the church, the Apostle Peter warned the elders of Asia not to lord it over those in their charge. That's 1 Peter 5.3. Yes, they have the responsibility of spiritual oversight in the church, but they were not to do that in an overbearing manner. They were not to see themselves as CEOs or big shots or somebody important. They were not to allow themselves to become filled with pride. They were to lead by serving. They're to lead by example. And authority in the church is always earned through service and is never to be demanded. Peter tells them that instead of lording it over them, they are to be an example to the flock. So the lesson here, never use your position to put yourself first. Never demand first play so that others serve you. Instead, be an example to others of the kind of faithful service that our Master has called us to. Now, of course, we could apply this in many settings. We could apply it, apply it in the home and the family. We could apply it in the business world. But I think we'd better move on so we can get through the rest of this passage. There is a second thing that we see here, and that is the punishment which he endured. The punishment he endured. Look with me at verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant... And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Instead of putting himself first, what did he do? Well, first of all, he emptied himself. That word emptied means to make of no effect. And the idea here is that instead of flaunting the display of his outward majesty and glory, he hid it. He hid that glory. Now, if you want to see the exact opposite of this, you could turn to Isaiah 14 and read about the fall of Satan. He did the exact opposite. He exalted himself and was thus cast out of heaven. But Christ emptied himself. And folks, this is what our master is like. And if he is our life, then we're to be just like him. We are to have this very same kind of attitude. You know, Euodia and Syntyche had gotten out of fellowship because at least one of them had gotten more high-minded than she ought How do we know? Well, because when we have that servant attitude toward others that Christ had, 
we can't help but to be in harmony. There's going to be unity and harmony when we have that Christ-like attitude, when we're serving one another and putting others first. There's going to be harmony and unity. It's when we fail to have this attitude that we have problems with the fellowship of the church. So Christ emptied himself, and we are to do the same. But what else did he do? Well, he took upon himself the form of a bondservant. This is the second time the word form is used, but this time it is not the form of God. This time it is the form of a bondservant. This is the word doulos, slave. It refers to the lowest kind of slave in the Roman world. His condescension was a voluntary descent from his position as the majestic king of the universe to serve as a slave on this earth. It is no wonder that Paul and the other apostles also referred to themselves as the slaves of Christ. A slave is never better than his master. It would also be very appropriate for us to refer to ourselves that way. We are simply his servants. We are servants of the master. But now, think about it a minute. I think the reason that Jesus chose to refer to himself this way is perhaps because a slave has no reputation. The King James says, he made of himself no reputation. You see, you don't have a reputation when you're a slave. You don't own anything. You are under orders. You have no rights. You simply do as you are told. And in the same way, Jesus was completely submissive to the will of the Father. And in the same way, you and I are to be submissive to Christ as Lord. Now, the last phrase in verse 7 simply refers to his incarnation. He was made in the likeness of men. He put on human flesh. He became one of us so that he might redeem us from sin. This came about, of course, through the miraculous conception of the virgin birth. And not only did the Holy Spirit supernaturally bring about the immaculate conception of Christ within the Virgin Mary, but even more remarkable than that, he brought about the uniting of the divine nature and the human nature into one. Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. Incredibly, the uncreated, infinite, eternal nature of God was completely integrated with the finite, created nature of man. Now, you talk about a miracle. And in that state... The divine glory of the Son of God was concealed by the perishable flesh of man. Now, we've seen that in Hebrews. 
He had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like us. Go on to verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man. Stop right there for just a moment. The word for appearance there is a word that was used for a king that removed his royal robes and put on sackcloth. Don't you know that the angels in heaven were absolutely amazed when this happened? How could the king of glory stoop so low? How could he strip off the glory of his majesty and put on human flesh? The scripture says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Going back in Philippians 2 and verse 8, he says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this obedience was not obedience to man. It was obedience to the Father. And John 5.19 says, Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Was Jesus less than the Father? No. He was completely equal with the Father. Yet, to whom did he submit his will? The will of the Father. Why? For our sake. For our sake. Now, what about us? Do we have a submissive spirit like this? Are we any better than Christ himself? Of course not. If he had a submissive will to the Father, should we not even more so have a submissive will? And the Bible says he was willing to die on a cross. You know, crucifixion is the most humiliating form of capital punishment ever devised. It was reserved for criminals and lowlifes. And yet, Jesus was willing to die that way for us. His lowest point of descent was when he became sin for the sake of his people. His greatest act of humility was when he was beaten, mocked, and tortured for us. He died as a common criminal, raised in humiliation above the crowds in the midst of jeers, and insults. And yet, Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy that was set 
before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy that he looked forward to? What was so great that he could look past the suffering of the cross and the shame? That leads us to our last point, the preeminence to which he was exalted. Look with me at verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. After an earthly humiliation came a heavenly exaltation. After the Son of God experienced the depth of condescension and humiliation, God gloriously raised him up from the grave. His perfect work of redemption was finished. Divine justice had been fully satisfied and the power of sin and death was forever defeated. Forty days later, he ascended back into the glory of heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high. God the Father highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every other name. And you know, I could easily preach a message just on that one point. But what I want you to take note of this morning is that the one who is exalted is the one who is first humbled and has become obedient to the will of the Father. That is the pathway of exaltation. It is the path of humility. You have to humble yourself and acknowledge your sin and acknowledge there's only one God and you are not Him. There's got to be humility. And I know that it is the exact opposite that this world holds as a virtue. But this is gospel truth for believers, for Christians. The one who will be exalted is the one who is willing to lower himself and look first to the needs of others. Paul knew this truth. He said in this very same chapter, in verse 17, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Paul said, It is a joy and privilege to suffer for your sake so that you might be made complete in Christ. Is that our heart? Do we have that attitude? And yet, we know that Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, I have awaiting for me a crown of righteousness. Oh, listen, there is a crown, but first, there has to be a cross. The trials and testing must come first. Folks, you and I have two choices, really. We can either try to exalt ourselves, and when we do, the Bible says, He will humble us. Or 
we can humble ourselves and trust him to exalt us in his time and his way. Which will we do? We have a great example to follow. We have one who totally emptied himself of all rights and privileges as God in order to suffer and die on our behalf. And we are to have the same attitude he had. You see, Philippians 2 is not just about Christ. It's about us as well. Go back to verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, and do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is our mandate, folks. That is our calling. It is a high calling, but He is worthy of our attaining it. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that we would, in fact, have this attitude in our own hearts, in our own minds, that this would be our disciplined, controlled way of thinking, that we would die to self, that we would consider others more important than ourselves, and that we might follow the example we have in Christ. And Lord, as we think about this great parabola, as we think about what Christ did on our behalf, as he left the splendor and glory of heaven and humbled himself and became a man and even faced the humiliation of the cross, we also remember he was highly exalted and given a name which is above every other name. And we know that ultimately every single knee will ultimately bow before Christ and acknowledge him as Lord of all. But Lord, we have that opportunity to do that in faith. Lord, help us to humble ourselves. Help us to recognize we're all sinners. There's only one Savior. And that if we will humble ourselves and repent of our sin and call upon your mercy and grace to save us, that your promise is that you will give us eternal life. And that we can be with you forever in heaven. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to have your wisdom. Make the gospel clear in our hearts and minds today. And, Lord, we pray that we would respond with true saving faith. And we ask this in Christ's name today. Amen.